episode of Dopey is brought to you by our very good friends at Oro Recovery, located in sunny Southern California, created by Bob Forrest and his good friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission, to help alcoholics and drug addicts by treating them with compassion and connection rather than control. Their team has decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness, when you go to rehab, you want to kick comfortably in detox. And their detox is super comfortable, whether you're kicking alcohol or heroin or crack or meth or whatever. Uh, their amenities are off the hook. Good fucking sound bath meditation, equine therapy, surfing, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge, and so much more. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get sober, I cannot suggest going to Oro nearly enough. Check them out at ororecovery.com. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by the good folks at Sober Buddy. And if you didn't know, I am one of the good folks at Sober Buddy. Sober Buddy 
is a originally it was an app with challenges that helped you get and stay sober. Then it became kind of a social media platform where different alcoholics and drug addicts help each other on their quest to keep sober and get sober. And then they added Zooms. And every week, I think there's 11 or 12 sober buddy Zooms during the week. I host a Zoom at 9 a.m. in the morning on Wednesday. And it's really, it's really fantastic. It's really fantastic. So if you're looking for another tool in your sobriety toolbox, check out Sober Buddy at YourSoberBuddy.com or at the Google Play Store or at the uh, wherever, the App Store. Check them out. I need to tell you guys about a great recovery podcast called Recovery in the Middle Ages about two middle-aged suburban dads in their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. Listen to Nat and Mike as they discuss current topics of interest like 12-step, alt-recovery, medical research, book reviews, TV show reviews, and they talk about their daily struggle to maintain their recovery and anonymity in the world of soccer moms and PTA meetings. If the neighbors only knew, find Recovery in the Middle Ages wherever you get your podcasts or at middleagesrecovery.com. Okay, we have a new sponsor, Diamond Recovery. Adam and Allison came to DopeyCon from Diamond Recovery, and they made the magic of DopeyCon even more magical because Diamond is committed to our community. They're committed in providing the highest level detox possible. They have a spot in Atlanta, Georgia, and a spot in Boca Raton, Florida. So if you're anywhere near there and you're looking to be treated in a super comfortable setting where all of your needs will be met, check them out. Diamond is also incredibly committed to treating co-occurring mental health disorders. If your primary problem is a mental health disorder, Diamond is the spot to check out. You check them out at diamondrecovery.com. They will be around Dopey for a little bit. You will hear way more about them, and we are super grateful to have them on the team. Just one more ad before the show. Maybe the most important ad of all. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our very good friends at thephoenix.org. The Phoenix is a nonprofit that helps addicts and alcoholics have a good time in recovery. I think it's really the only important thing in recovery is to try to have fun. The Phoenix believes that too. Dopey believes it. If you are looking to have fun, to get fit, to take hikes, to play pickleball, to see shows, to go to events, check out thephoenix.org slash dopey podcast. The Phoenix is just an incredible resource. If you're looking to get involved, to have fun, check them out at thephoenix.org. All they require from you is 48 hours of continuous clean time. Check out The Phoenix. Enough with the ads. Here's the fucking show. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And my name is Dave. And um, I'm like in withdrawal 
from DopeyCon. DopeyCon IV withdrawal is real. I think I ate my last Othello piece yesterday. I've been eating, fucking taking Benadryl, taking NyQuil. It's getting crazy. I take, Benadryl, I take Benadryl and I relapse in my sleep every night. I get arrested in my sleep. I like have threesomes. It's, I have threes, I, everything I do never happens. Like I get arrested, but I don't get to go to jail. I have drugs in my pocket, but I don't end up doing them. I have the opportunity to have a threesome, but it never happens. But I'm, I'm enjoying the sleep, the sleep aid dreams. I really like them. Is that a relapse? Is that a problem? I don't think so. But if it is, tell me at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. I've been eating like it's going out of style. I have to share one thing with you, all of you, that I didn't get to share. Whoever got Othello cookies, I, I commend you. We all shared something very special. The Othello is the real thing. I always wanted to take Dopey Podcast <clears throat> onto Shark Tank, but I'm thinking maybe we should just take the Othello onto to Shark Tank. And I want to tell you guys, I want to paint you a picture of what I did the night after DopeyCon IV. My friend Gil, my neighbor, was taking pictures all night. Afterwards, we stopped at a deli where I bought, I don't know if you guys know what a chopped cheese sandwich is. A chopped cheese sandwich is like a New York City bodega deli classic. They take chopped meat, onions and peppers, chop them up. Then they take, I want to say American cheese, melted on there, mayonnaise, ketchup, maybe lettuce on kind of a hero. Then grill the whole thing. Delicious. I bought me and Gil a tiny vanilla cookie dough ice cream. We ate that in the car. And when I got home, I took an Othello cookie and I chopped it up. And my and Linda had bought chocolate and vanilla briars, half chocolate, half vanilla. And I took it right down the line of chocolate and vanilla. So it was black and white in every bite. I added bits and pieces of Othello. So it was a black and white sundae with Othello pieces and chocolate syrup. I think I added peanut butter too. It's getting out of hand, but I feel good about it. The Othello is now gone. It's history. I, again, I want to congratulate everybody that got to eat it. And I want to give a big shout out. Uh, one last shout out for all the people who love shout outs to every person that got to go to DopeyCon. You made my heart sing. It was incredible. And now I want to give one final shout out to Margaret fucking Hernandez. Margaret Hernandez just celebrated 34 years of recovery. We had a meeting, a sober buddy meeting the other day. And uh, there were some people who had gone out, you know, early recovery, blah, blah, blah. And then Margaret stepped up. And the day before she had celebrated 34 years. And it was, it was just incredibly inspiring. And Margaret said... The way that she got her 34 years, she summed it up in one word, and the word was dopey. No, the word was consistency. And, and I rarely talk about the merits of recovery and blah, 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 but Margaret was so inspiring when she talked about consistency that she has a program that, you know, she has a spiritual program, she has a meeting program, she talks to people, she's connected, and if you are consistent, that's the easiest way to maintain your recovery. Honestly, if you're looking for more recovery from Dopey, write in an email at dopeypodcast at gmail.com or come to our Sober Buddy meeting. 
Our sober buddy meeting on Wednesday is great. Or check out Dopey Zoom. Dopey Zoom is every day the schedule is posted on Instagram. Go to Instagram and check out the Dopey Zoom schedule. You will not be disappointed if you do. And just in case you are curious, the Dopey Zoom address is 804-300-586 and the password is toodles. Hang out with all of your favorite dopes all the time, all week. I think they have 25 meetings a week. Another amazing place to go to meetings in person in, if you're in New Orleans, if you're in New Orleans and you're really totally fucked and you want to get some help, you have to check out Imagine Recovery. Imagine Recovery is another dopey sponsor who stepped up for DopeyCon IV. It's my friends Chris and Felicia who had me in New Orleans for Jazz Fest. Their program is a very, very, very special one. Imagine treats addiction, but they love to use the term substance misuse because Imagine recognizes that substance use is on a spectrum. They believe that preventative care and treating people in all phases, helping them to interrupt the path that may be leading them toward alcoholism and drug addiction is preventable and treatable. Check them out at imaginerecovery.com. They're just a very special place, very special bunch of people incredibly kind, incredibly giving, and incredibly connected to New Orleans. Their staff are personal friends of mine, and they are a great friend to Dopey. So check them out at imaginerecovery.com. All right, let's get, to, let's get to the show here. I got this note. I had to read this note. It's from Ben in Australia. And he says, Hi, Dave and Dopey Nation. I'll try Should I do it in an Australian accent? Hi, Dave and Dopey Nation. It's Ben from Australia, down under. No, I'm not going to do my bad Australian accent. Thanks for sharing the convention with everyone. I like that he called it a convention. It was great to hear everyone from afar. I have a couple of opinions I've got to share with you. And he put opinions all in caps. Having sex with trans people isn't edgy anymore. Novak, it's completely normal. I used to find them in Craigslist whenever my wife let me and we had some really good times. And then he wrote, old buddy... In the glory hole is a coward. I would have eaten that dick as my duty in the fucking glory hole. I loved, and he said Lydia's, but it was Jess's. I loved Jess's story about the owl. Reminded me how I used to pick the bones out of roadkill and stick them in my guitar. I believed it was voodoo magic that would telepathically transmit my music into the world's mind. Going Out West by Tom Waits was my favorite song to broadcast at that time, or Swing Low, Swing Chariot. Love to all the Dopey Nation and fucking toodles for Chris. That's good, Ben. Thank you. I, I kind of want to send Ben socks for that because he would have eaten the dick in the glory hole. So, Ben, if you want to send me your address, I will send you some socks down under. All right. And then, um, all, right, all right, all right. And then I heard this. I had to read this one. Well, I've heard you ask people to write in for different prompts, and I guess this one just spoke to me. On episode 398, you had somebody write in and talk about buying an ounce of dope one last time. I am in Portland, Oregon, and everything is through Honduran cartels around here. But an ounce of dope is about 800 bucks, and I used to buy an ounce at a time just because it would cut down on trips. This was also when my wife and I were using. I'm still slowly using subs here and there, but have just last week quit taking the subs. I feel, 
And then he wrote something that doesn't make sense. He wrote, I feel attacks like a zombie, but I'll make it. Been doing this for over a decade and want a dopey, I'm sorry, and want a normal life again. Thanks for doing what you do and toodles for Chris. All right, dude. Fucking, you know the deal. Fucking do what Margaret does. Consistency. Just get to business. Get to business. Go to some meetings. Whatever kind of meeting, get a program. Fucking hell. Um, all right. Another thing about DopeyCon IV, there, there was Amelia, our incredible editor, was there shooting video with her partner, Joey. Joey, after it's over, whips out his tattoo gun and starts tattooing dopey heads on people. One young dope asked if Joey would tattoo the head on her ass, and he said, I don't do asses, which was a great quote. And, and then I got a picture from this guy in England who, who got a giant Marlboro package tattooed on his stomach, and it says toodles on it. And when I asked him, uh, I said, what do you say to people uh, when they ask why you've gotten it? And he said, I say I listen to the best podcast ever made, then make them listen to it. I've listened to every episode seven times, and it's completely changed my outlook on life. What you and Chris did and you continue to do is just brilliant, and everyone should know about it. And that's Thomas in England, and, uh, and thank you, Thomas. You blew my mind with the Toodles Marlboro box. And back on the show this week from the Cro-Mags, author, New York, New Yorker, New York City guy, New Yorker, fucking John Joseph, lauded author, lauded drug addict, lauded plant-based eater, cooker, hero, hero of, of the doposphere is back. But before we get to John Joseph, I need to tell you that this week's episode of Dopey is brought to you by BetterHelp. I started therapy again today. Finally, I'm back in therapy. Yes. Why? Because I was making stupid decisions and I was acting like a dummy. Therapy helps you trust yourself to make decisions that align with your values. The more practice we have at it, the easier it gets. Talking about it with a therapist is incredibly, incredibly helpful. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com. That's betterhelp.com slash dopeypodcast today and get 10% off your first month. All right. A few weeks ago, I read a message from a young woman in South Africa named Tendani. She followed up and sent in a voicemail. So here she is, Tendani, all the way from South Africa. Hi, Dave. Hi, Dopey Nation. This is Tendani here, messaging all the way from South Africa. And yeah, Dave, you've pushed me into a corner here. I had to send this after hearing on Dopey Zoom from Katie that you had read my Instagram post. I hadn't listened to the episode yet, which was released here in South Africa on my birthday, which was the 7th. So how synchronous 
synchronistic is that i think that's a word please excuse me in my vocab um but yes this is my voice message i just wanted to thank you dave so much for the show i think it is absolutely so inspiring and so real you know and i came across it after a friend told me about it um he told me about an episode where you interviewed an addiction counselor and i had expressed to him as an addiction counselor that I really struggled with, um, you know, finding the balance between my counseling and my sobriety and humbling myself sometimes. And that's essentially what got me to relapse in April after three and a half years, you know, a lot of complacency, a lot of ego, a lot of pride. And during my relapse, I would listen to Dopey And I would just pray that something would hit me, something would sink in so that I was able to find my feet in recovery again. And, you know, I think something eventually did, thank God, because I am feeling like I'm back in the game. As I record this, I'm 48 days. So feeling like I'm back in the day, in the game and feeling like myself again and most importantly, really, really, really wanting recovery, which is which is not what I wanted when I was in that space, even though it was so dark and so lonely and so horrific. But I'm so grateful to be back. And I can honestly say that your show played a major part in that. And I really, really appreciate it. I love being able to listen to the show, but I hate that I can't attend things like DopeyCon. I would have loved to be there. I really love the Dopey Nation. The people that I've met on Dopey Zoom have been absolutely incredible. Um, And yeah, I feel like, you know, my higher power brought me to you and to, to the Dopey Nation peeps. And I suppose, I guess I'll just, you know, add a message of hope for anyone who might be struggling that it does get better, you know, it does get better. And recovery is the best thing that I've ever done for myself in my life. And even 40 days in, 48 days in, sorry, I feel so blessed. So much is happening in my life. So much, (coughs) excuse me, sorry. Um, So much is happening in my life. So much is taking place. And I only have my power to thank really because just you know just under two months ago I had to be rescued by my mom who had to drive 1,400 kilometers away from where we lived I don't know what that is in miles I'm so sorry um to fetch me because I had messed up after moving to to another city on the other side of the country and I had I was kept being kicked out of my friend's house and I was only staying there because I couldn't afford rent for my own place. And, you know, I just expected a lecture from her. I expected her to be mad at me because she had driven that long and we had that that long to go to get home. So I was expecting a lecture for the whole way there and it didn't come. And all I've been shown is compassion and love from so many people in my life. And I think that's what I've needed this time around. I think there is a time for tough love, but this time around, I just needed 
some compassion and grace because I had been the toughest on myself. So yes, this is me. Thank you so much again, Dave. Really, really, really love everything you do. Hopefully I can make it to Dopicon in the next five years. Um, but yeah, and shout out to the Dopey Nation. Toodles. All right. Thank you, Tendani. Look at that. Australia, South Africa. I hope you're still doing good, Tendani. I will send you socks as well. These are going to be the most expensive shipping costs I've ever spent, but you did the work. And if you are interested in getting, and not you, Tendani, because you did it, but if you, random Dopey Nation member, are interested in getting, winning a pair of Dopey socks, submit a voicemail or an email, make it good. And if I play it or read it, I'll send you some socks. Or you can just buy a pair of Dopey socks. Or you can join Dopey Patreon. Ah, Dopey Patreon. The beauty of Dopey Patreon is that if you love Dopey, you can support Dopey by joining Dopey Patreon. A lot of stuff on Dopey Patreon. A lot of interviews, a lot of videos, a lot of bonus material. If you're dying to see DopeyCon IV, Howie did it up this year. I think we had like five cameras. It's going to be on Dopey Patreon. I just did a DopeyCon IV recap show with the great Ray Brown, the Raytreon show, with some bonus original Dopey music, much more. Go to www.patreon.com slash Podcast. Most importantly, if you love Dopey and you want more of it in your life and you can't believe you get so much fucking content for free, then kick down a little bit, my brothers and sisters in and out of recovery. Join Dopey Patreon. It's the right thing to do. We also have Dopey Patreon Zooms. You get access to our Sober Buddy Zooms on Wednesday. It's just, just great. It's just a tremendous experience for everybody involved. It might be the greatest Patreon channel that there is. www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. Check it out. All right. Before we get to John Joseph, I have a couple of more announcements. First one is that this episode of Dopey, another DopeyCon IV sponsor that stepped up is our old friend, Mountainside Recovery. Mountainside Recovery is, of course, most famous for being the place that Dopey came from. I met Chris at Mountainside. Mountainside has a full continuum of care, which includes detox, residential, and long-term residential treatment. Chris was in long-term residential treatment. They also have outpatient and recovery coaching programs. So whatever program a person needs, they have it. They also started two programs specifically dedicated to helping families heal. So if a dad or a wife or whoever needs help, Mountainside can provide it. Another very cool thing about Mountainside is they offer a huge range of holistic wellness activities. Fucking yoga, acupuncture, sweat lodge, sound bath, art and music therapy. If you were at DopeyCon IV, you would have seen Tuan fuck it up on the sound bowls. Amazing. That should go on Patreon too, the sound bowl meditation. It was so good and it just couldn't go into the real show. If you are looking for an amazing recovery experience, check out mountainside.com. It, it really was an incredible place to get sober. All right, so without further ado, fucking lauded author, member of the Chromags, hardcore 
maestro, the one and only John Joseph. Back on Dopey. We're back at 0.0 in an abandoned office with Dopey legend, author, lead singer of Blood Clot and the Cro-Mags, evolution of a Cro-Magnon author, fucking meet us for pussies author, unfuck your life author, PMA author. John Joseph, welcome back to the show. Hey, do I qualify as a legend on your show? <laughs> you, de- are you, I think you qualified as a legend on the show before you ever came on the show. Well, it's an honor to be back. I'm uh, in the city for a few days, so uh, thanks for having me, bro. And there's a new book coming out. Can we can we mention the name? Can't say the title, and I'll tell you why. Because the last time I put out a book and I said the title before it came out, somebody like got the website and tried to charge me all this money and tried to copyright my book title. So I don't mention the title until it's out and official. Before we even get to the book, I want to offer condolences because your little brother died. Yeah, my brother died. Uh, Last year at this time, and uh, and last time you were on, you told the story of him in the hospital, and your dad was down the hall. Not, no, my dad was in the next room dying, which is like insane. So, uh, and I, you know, he, he he went through so much at the end, and uh, you know, he, his wife uh, OD'd in his arms and died. Uh, you know, strokes, heart attacks. Then he had that last stroke, and uh, he just never came back from that. It was he—he he was paralyzed, couldn't speak really. And the last months, he was just the VA was delivering his oxycontins, and he was ordering just alcohol uh, from Uber to pick up bottles of booze. For, I mean, it—it it just was like. We knew that phone call was coming, but, you know, it never eases the pain of losing a sibling like that. And uh, especially, like, my mom just lost it, you know. But, you know, I took time to grieve, but I I was like, how do I process this? Because I couldn't come to New York. I was in Florida. And uh, I basically, my friend was with me when the call came. He's like, yo, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave you to deal with this, and I was like, thanks, bro. So I did my crying, and I was like, you're at this thing, like, what do you do? And I just, I, I was in the middle of writing a book on addiction and telling the story of our family, and and I'm like, there's only one way I could deal with this right now, and that's to write. So I wrote the second chapter of the book. It was about his life and. It was literally a couple of hours after I found out that he died. And, um, you know, it messed me up. And But that's how I process things. So I think it's one of the... My friend read it, and he's in recovery. He was crazy story. Danny Ilchuk, who worked with the Bad Brains and Junkie for so long. And he was like, you know, like that was one of the most powerful chapters he ever read, you know, like... Well, the thing about it is, like, I've read a lot of your your stuff now. Like, I've read a lot of your stuff, and I've heard you talk about your life a lot. And one thing you always talk about is is brotherhood between you and E and Frank. And if if someone fucks with one of you, they fuck with all of you. And and you always, always said, 
when you were growing up in these horrible foster situations, Frank eats first. Yeah. And uh, well, that's the way it was. You know, we you know we were kids traumatized. So like sometimes Frank got to be the butt of the jokes and you know stuff like that. And but like he was our little brother, and like if you fucking touched him, that was it. You know, like I remember accepting the blame on shit that we did just to take the beating from the foster father. So, you know, he, he didn't have to. And, uh, that, you know, that, that's what it was. It was this bond. Like when you go through something like that for nearly six years, you know, it was heavy, heavy stuff, man, you know, but, uh, yeah, we stuck, we stuck together and, um, you know, just to see him, I think, like I said in the book, you know, it's when his, he was doing really good, and then his first wife, Lauren, uh, died of cancer. And that just ruined And him. that just... Crushed he, him. He, he started, you know... That's what I said, too, is we don't know what... Like, I, I put all the statistics of people who are addicts, and I think it was, like, close to 85% have been abused as children. So we don't know what people are going through that... You know, I always told the story of the one guy, he was a Wall Street broker and in the PMA effect, and I used to see him out when I fed the homeless, and I, he would never talk or nothing. He would just grab food, and and then I was, like, sitting down with him a couple of times and got him to open up, you know? And uh, he was like, yeah, I, I had the six-figure job, Wall Street, condo in Tribeca, house upstate. And my wife and daughters were killed by a drunk driver. And then I just lost all hope, desire to live. What a, you know, and I started drinking. And then I stopped going. I started not going to work, couldn't pay the bills, got evicted, did drugs, ended up on the streets. The guy was sleeping under the FDR drive, thinking about suicide. And he said he was going to jump off the Manhattan Bridge and he just had this vision of his kids and they, you know, and it was like, would they want me to do this? And it's just, we don't know what people go through. Like, so we can't judge the trauma that, and, and Frank was always like, he was always like the, um, I think the most fragile one. Well, like you took my, the beatings for him sometimes. Yeah, and, and my brother E just shut down and like didn't ever talk about it. I was the one who was vocal and became the fighter of the family. Like that, I was named after my father who was a pro boxer. And I used to just fucking knock people out, never as a bully, but if, if you fucked with any one of us, I didn't care what I had to do to, to beat your ass. I just, if I had to pick something up, that's, Life on the streets, you know, I, I just feel he got hurt the worst. I became angry, thus the punk rock, getting into that in the 70s, and I just saw it as like, I identified with it. I was like, yeah, fuck this whole shit, and being out on the streets at 14, 15, all that in New York in 76, 77, you know, you had to just fend for yourself. Well, you don't know what that was like in New York City back then. Like, most people have no idea what the streets were like. 
I slept on the train going from like Far Rockaway all the way up to 207th Street in Manhattan because you'd get two hours up and two hours back and fucking people trying to rob you, cutting your pockets open, you know, just. You do so much uh, work like helping people and, and recovery is obviously super important to you. Like you were writing this book when Frank died. Yeah. Did you feel like. I mean, one of the things that, I mean, I do this podcast, right? So it's all these drug addicts that, that I talk to all the time. And, and, and sometimes some people do better and sometimes they don't. And, and I don't know the right thing to say to somebody because, like, you don't know how someone's going to respond to something you say. Like, did you feel any kind of guilt when Frank died? Or did you feel like, did you talk to him about your recovery? Did you try to get him to do oh, fucking Hare Krishna? Tried, you know, I just posted on his birthday and I was like, and my brother said, bro, we, we tried to do every, I mean, I did so many, inter, I did an intervention him, on him the day before 9-11. I had to go to Staten Island. The Morrisons, who were like the tough family on the Lower East Side, nobody fucked with. Joey, I love those guys, Alex, Josh, Amy, his sister, she's a filmmaker now. Their mother let Frank live in the attic in Staten Island. And she called me up and she was like, if you don't come get your brother, he's going to be dead in a week. And I had to go out there to Staten Island and I dragged him onto the fucking ferry. And we're going back across, looking at downtown Manhattan, like the fucking Twin Towers. And I'm like, I'm getting you on a plane to Puerto Rico tomorrow. You, and then you're going to St. Thomas to the more, uh, Josh, was it Josh or Joey, I think, ran a recovery place down there. And, he, you know, Frank was a great mechanic. So he was like, come down. We'll get in recovery. we go to our meetings. I got a ton of work for you, people's boats and all kinds of shit. And then the next morning, he was, hey, I got him a flight out that night, 9-11. And then fucking the planes hit. And he detoxed on my couch. And... Like both of us just, I had to re, we relived all the shit we went through as kids. It was, uh, it was like, I could, you know, he was there for two weeks. You were sober then? Yeah. I think I just got clean because I got 22 years in now. And I had a weed delivery service and I was doing fucking weed cakes and DJing and all this shit. And uh, AJ Novello, who was. What was the weed service called? It was my own thing. It was just private. I was on a bike delivering weed around 2000. Well, I used to work for the Pope. That was the original. We D, we deliver, and then the Pope, the Pope of Pot, yeah, 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 Mickey, yeah. I worked for him. But I, I, I did my own thing eventually, and I, I delivered to Dave Chappelle, everybody. and um, You might have been the, uh, the inspiration for Mr. Nice Guy. No, it was uh, half-baked. Yeah, that, that was the... Well, that, yeah, yeah, well, see, I delivered to Dave, and I rode a fucking $10,000 racing bike. I had all the racing gear on, helmet, everything, and I never carried a backpack because the DTs, the knocks, were looking for the people on the bikes with the backpacks. I had the little baggies with... Two and a half grams stuffed into a black water bottle, and I had two water bottle cages, so I was able to carry like, you know, 30, 40 bags. So I would just do them all and then go back and re up. And so I, my client was Matt Hine from TriStar Pictures. He was the publicist. So 
first time I delivered the day was at the Boston Comedy Club, and there was like fucking 20 people there. And he's like, this guy's going to be fucking huge. <laughs> and I'm standing there watching Dave Chappelle do fucking stand-up. Right. And then we went down into the basement and fucking, or whatever the fuck, we did a deal. And then a couple months later, he was in those like condos over there on like 17th, 18th, and 2nd Avenue in, in Gramercy Park. Those fucking like, like a duplex. Right, right, like, right. He started blowing the fuck up. That's awesome. I always tell Joe, I'm friends with Joe Rogan, and I'm always like, yo, man, tell Dave I was the guy that fucking delivered to him and shit. <laughs> like, you know? I want, I want, you know, what What do you make of uh, New York City right now? Like, that you can't, like, walk a street without dispensaries. It's crazy. Ah, oh, yeah, you know, you knew that was coming. Like, listen, man, if the government can make money off of something, then... It took them a long time, though. Yeah, well, you know, come on, man. Lick a fucks a lot more people up than weed does, man. And and then you got, you know, people... It, I always used to say, you know, people ain't breaking your door down to get fucking bags of weed, you know, but crack and coke and all the other shit, dope. It's, you know, I mean, weed is the least harmful yeah it's like you know the lesser of the evils but for me as an addict i don't do any of that you know and no me too even now i just do like cbd for like inflammation or help sleep at night but you know it's not like you're getting high off the shit but i i, I just avoid everything man when uh when you got really into fitness and krishna stuff did you ever try to like pitch it to frank or no Frank was just naturally fucking strong. Frank was a... F I remember when Mars, this club opened back in the day on yeah, the, yeah. in the meatpacking district. The dude, Yuki, Japanese dude, opened it up. And my friends helped him build the place. This guy, John Watson, who also we all worked at Payday, which was an outlaw party. You know who I just talked to was uh, Dante Ross. Yeah, I know him. Yeah, he talked about you. Yeah, he said I nice knew Dante like when they were building the world. Yeah, um, yeah, he, Dante yeah. was living in the world Yeah, on, with Frank Rocchio and all that shit. Yeah, so yeah. Frank Rocchio died of AIDS from heroin. But like Frank was just cock diesel. That motherfucker used to, I mean, he never worked out of nothing. And he just was the, one of the strongest people, like, because he's slinging motors all fucking day. And it's just like he's His working. Lifestyle. Yeah, he's a fucking beast. So we, so I was with Artie Googie, the original drummer from the Misfits. He played on Walk Among Us. So we went, the opening was New Year's Eve. I forget what year it was when Mars opened. But it, it opened on New Year's Eve. And Artie goes downstairs to, he knew the dude. He's like, I'm going to get a couple of bottles, you know, for champagne, for the midnight toast. So me and Frank are up there and fucking we're like, where's Artie? It's getting near midnight. He comes up. He's like, yo, man, these fucking guidos just fucking smacked me up and shit and surrounded me and all this shit. I was like, what? I was like, go downstairs. And I'm like, just hang in the cut, point them all out. I want to. I want to know how. Let's let's just watch them. I want to know how many there is because I don't want to. I've been in a lot of club fights and it's like, when even it when I well. started doing aikijitsu and I got in a fight with a bouncer at the limelight, I took him down. He was just walking through my punches. I took him down and then like mounted him, and his boy kicked me in the side of the face and busted my eardrum. So I was like, we ain't gonna have none of that. So we're watching, and. uh there was like six or seven of them. 
I was like, which one? He's like, the big one right there is the one that fucking, you know, that smacked me. And the other guy held me and the guy punched me. So I was like, all right, I'm going to take him out. And then we're going to fucking just romp on the rest of them. So we're walking towards him and the guy's sitting there with a fucking champagne. Like, you know, he's like 6'2", big Guido weightlifter dude. So he sees me walking up with Artie and he goes like to his girl, like, (laughs) hold my drink. And as he passed off the drink, I just did a flying front kick, caught him in the jaw, out. But the reason I'm bringing it up, not like we just started banging these dudes out. Frank actually lifted one of these dudes up, shoulder pressed him, and threw him over the bar into the bottles. That's how that's how strong Frank was. And it was just wild because like we fucking took them, we banged them all out. And then the security rushed in. The club was so packed, we had to get two two flights down to get out. And we just jumped as now my punk rock hardcore shit came into helpful. We just jumped up and crowd surfed and rolled down on top of everybody, you know, to get away from the bouncers. And then as we're getting to the front door, the security guy's headphone microphone goes off. He's like, they're coming through the front door now. And the, the guy tries to tackle us. And I just, boom, banged him and like knocked down the velvet ropes. And we were, but we made the paper the next day that opening night of Mars a big, we never told Yuki that it was us. Right. Punk rock melee. Punk rock melee right. in the day. Guidos go down yeah. Mars. No, I love that. And I, I, you just tell such good stories, such cinematic. Well, yeah. you know, I love hearing your stories. What made you decide to do like a straight up addiction recovery book? Well, I was really seeing a lot of people with the fentanyl and now guitar player died in blood clot, right? Todd Youth relapsed. He got some heroin that had fucking fentanyl in it and he died right after the record came out on Metal Blade, Up in Arms. We was, the record was fucking doing great, man. And everybody wanted us to go on tour with him. We do one tour. He comes back. His wife says she don't want to be with him no more. And he just fucking relapsed, fucking did some dope and died. And like this guy was, when he came onto the streets in the early 80s, he was like 12 years old and he escaped from a foster home. So he was like, I'm like, it's like my little brother, the same fucking story. I was like, and people started bullying on him. I said, anybody touches fucking Todd Youth, I'm going to fuck you up. And I took him under my wing, and we were always friends. We did a band called Both Worlds. We opened up for the Chili Peppers at the Ritz when they did the Mother's Milk. And we just wanted to always do music, and then we had the opportunity. And uh, we did a demo. I went out to do the Navy SEAL Half Iron Man called Super Frog, and I tore my calf. So not wanting a negative situation to just be the fucking outcome of the whole trip to California because I was in San Diego, I said, yo, let's do this. Let's do these songs that you've been working on. Fucking went and demoed them, and we got signed. Michael Alago helped structure the deal for us, who signed Metallica. He's also- He's been on the show. I fucking love Mike. I'm having dinner with him tonight. I love Michael. Michael, we love you. Say what's up. This guy does so much to help people in recovery. He's so selfless. Never talks about anything. Anybody I ever sent to him- he would fucking talk to them and sweetheart yeah yeah he's he's like one of the best people i know his documentary who the fuck is that guy 
is the, and then he's got a book, The Fabulous Life of Michael Alago. Yeah, 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 yeah. He yeah. signed Metallica, White Zombie, worked with Nina Simone, just everybody, you know. And he helps a ton of people in the Yeah, company. and he tried to help Todd and you know, and it was uh just you know, it was uh it was a sad thing. And then like just seeing everybody with the addiction and what my brother was going through. But I said like this, I, I, I looked at it and I go, what is the common denominator in all of these stories that we had to go through as kids, right? And I was like, it comes back to addiction, alcohol and drugs. My father, alcohol and drugs. My mother, drugs. My whole other side of the family, I met my cousin who I never met, hit me up on, you know, I wrote about it in a book. She hit me up on, on fucking Instagram and was like, I'm your cousin my dad was your dad's brother. I live in Long Beach. I would love to talk to you. I'm like, I'm standing there in my bike gear, ready to ride the 26 miles to Long Beach right. training ride. I'm like, I'm out there today. So we met, and then she just told me about my father and her father. When they were old enough to reach up to the bar, they were served hard liquor. That's how, that's how the Ireland and the Irish were. And then they had drug addiction problems. My grandfather on that side died of cirrhosis of the liver at 50 years old. It's just like, it's this cycle that just repeats and repeats and repeats. And I was like, I'm going to be the one to break the cycle. So then I just, you know, was realizing like, I, I was like, this is all due to addiction issues. And so then I took the framework of my story and I was like, all right. This is, I'm going to do a book about recovery. So the first half of the book is all Addiction. my story. And then the second half is this is what I do and others do on a daily basis to keep their fucking demons at bay. And it's, it's like, so I, I, I felt just telling the drug, crazy drug stories of me. And you notice shit when I start the first time I freebased, the guy had stolen fucking kilos from the Cuban cartel in Miami. They came up and shot up the fucking house with AR-15s. I, I almost got murdered. First time I ever freebased. And then, you know, it's just crazy stories. But I'm like, I have to offer the solution. Like, you know, when I was locked up, I boxed. I was always in the 70s. I was always physically fit and, you know, into fighting and stuff like that. But then I started getting into the cycling and the endurance sport side of it more and more and more. And the people you meet in the Ironman community, man, it's just, it's unbelievable, man. So many of my friends, Eric Joseph, he's a teacher. He's in recovery. He just did. I'm sure you don't meet too many like crackheads or using alcoholics who are doing the Ironman. Oh, no. That, they're <laughs> right. in recovery from it. Right. But, you don't, but yeah. there's... there's have you oh, ever no, you're not you right. you're not you, you ain't doing that shit if you're using man there's no you know that's not gonna happen i feel like the book is an antidote for addiction and every antidote needs to have a little bit of the poison in it so that's why you get the fucking hardcore stories yeah. in the book and i what i want to do here is i want to get a couple of old school gems and then get to a little solution stuff yeah and uh one of my favorite characters in the in, in the John Joseph saga is fucking Mikey Dubree. What the fuck? Is, like, tell the story of how you met him. All right. So I was in St. John's. And it's Dubree, not Dubree. Dubree. Mikey Dubree. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the nickname I gave him. But 
it was guys like Buckles Catano and Rockaway Beach and Jimbo Sterling and all these guys. They were all heroin addicts and they all sold fucking drugs. So I had... Uh, you were a kid. You were yeah, 15 I was a years kid. old. Well, I went on to the streets. I started going on to the streets in 76. So I, I caught my first case was Jimbo Sterling had a hot dog stand on 98th Street and I worked for him. And we used to put the weed in the hamburger and hot dog buns. So everybody got off the train, 98th Street and Playland, Rockaway Beach, and then walked up to the to the Playland amusement park. So they would walk right by his stand and he sold weed. So we would put the weed in the hot dog and the so these Hold up though, when you put weed in the hot dog bun, is there a hot dog too, or is it just No, bun? it was just the bun. Like there was a I don't remember what the code word was, but people started catching on that. You know, and it was locals bought from him. There was Sila, Wally Cochran, Jimbo. Those were the dealers, you know. So I, I split from the home and I was staying at his house. So he put me to work. And then these undercovers, they were bikers. They looked like Greg Allman and fucking whatever the fuck. And yeah. they just built up, you know, up to an ounce and then whatever. And I, I think I was bringing them like a quarter pound or something and delivering it to the fucking hot dog stand. And I, and as I'm getting closer, I just, something was fucking off. And Jimbo turned slightly to show that he's handcuffed. And I fucking bolted. And they caught me uh, up on the, I don't know why I ran onto the train platform, but they beat the shit out of me in the 100 precinct. That was my first case. I had to go to court for that. Then I split again. And this guy used to be a, Airborne commando named Tom. It was Tommy, uh, Tommy Keen and Joey Keen. So Joey Keen, we played handball on the courts. We won like tournaments and shit, but he was a crazy motherfucker. So we broke into this supermarket to get to the pharmacy and we got set up. So the cops, that was my second one. And then they were like, we're going to send you to Spotford. If you get in one more thing, I begged them. I cried, all this shit. And then I was hanging out with this crazy dude, Keeler, Bobby K. And uh, he got set on fire as a kid. He was all fucking burned up. His mother's boyfriend dumped him in the tub with lighter fluid for waking him up. Set him on fire. Crazy motherfucker. Yeah, Everybody was terrified of this guy in the neighborhood. He was the only... Dude in St. John's that dated a local girl, Bridget, and everybody hated him for it because she was like this hot chick. And uh, the first time I ever took acid, he tried to murder me. And it fucked up my whole time in the home. And then I just split. And it was the winter of January 77. And the, I, I like all these bums, I hate to say that, but they was winos. Mm-hmm. So there was this guy, Paulie. And this dude with no legs. And they lived under the marquee on 116th Street. was an abandoned theater. Then 115 was the Holland House. It was this abandoned hotel everybody would crash out in or whatever. So uh, first fucking few nights out there, this snowstorm hits. I'm like, what the fuck? I go down to Martin's Corner to get some food. And it was all like... It's so cinematic because it was all the unwanted people that lived in all the nursing homes along the boardwalk, you know, 
By Rockaway, you mean? yeah, Rockaway, my great grandma lived out Rockaway there. Rockaway Beach was all there. nursing homes with unwanted. We people. called it Bubby's Beach because it was my dad's grandmother's yeah. out there. So like Martin's Corner was 98th Street, and that's where they all used to go and sit in there, and yeah, I used there'd to go be there dudes with pee stains and fucking yeah, yeah. just crazy talking to themselves. So I'm sitting there and. Mikey was planning on robbing the fucking pinball machines, and I was like, "I'm down." And that, but when do you remember, do you remember like saying anything, or did you just see him going for the machines? No, I was sitting there, and uh, somebody was fucking, and I was looking at the machines, and I'm like watching it because I always, I used to go put the quarters in there too because I went to PS 180 on a hun uh, right over there, so we would go and. Uh, I wrote about it in my book. I was like, I never really paid attention to how much fucking money was in there. And then I'm like thinking in my head, how am I going to get into those machines? And I feel felt somebody staring at me. I turn around. It's this fucking dude with the spittle, the long hair, the droopy fucking mouth, total fucking junkie. He's like, yo, kid. <laughs> Has a fucking screwdriver inside the newspaper. And he's like... You know, telling me 70, 30. I'm like, if I do half the work, I want half the money. So we popped like two machines and then dumped, you know, he was planning a robbery. He dumped them in like a bag, pillowcase or some shit. Dropped the third box. The manager comes out. Hey, you cocksuckers. This fat fucking guy chases us with a baseball bat. And then Mikey says, wait here. I got to make sure it's cool with my roommate, Buckles. And he goes into the abandoned fucking bungalow, and I see the motherfucker running out of the back. <laughs> I turn around, I ran back there. I, I, I had this fucking blade on me, and I, like, popped it open. And I was like, motherfucker. And he's like, yo, kid. I'm like, you call me kid one more time, I'm going to fucking stab you. How much older was Mikey than you? Oh, he was in his 20s. I was like... Yeah, he was probably like 25, 20, you know, like that. He'd been locked up, but we went back to the house, and then it turned out that they needed somebody to go down to Alphabet City and pick up, and the Lower East Side, El Ridge first and first, and pick up bundles and carry it back on the train because everybody down there was paying off the cops. So if they knew you were copping and they rolled up on you, and you refused to pay them. The dirt, it was called the Dirty Ninth for a reason. And if you watch the Seven Five, the documentary, they say, yeah, the New York City Police Department was so fucking corrupt back then. And what did they show? The front door of the Ninth Precinct. So everybody, it was called the Dirty Ninth. Everybody was paying off the cops. That's why the the hitmen and all these gangs, the Allen Street Boys, all of them was able to fucking just have these huge spots. So they so buckles I, is like you're a kid. I, we can get away with it. Yeah, well, they, I went on the train and Mikey waited and then I went out and copped and all this shit and then, you know, bringing the shit back, stepped on it so they were able to make money, get high and re-up and do all that and that went on for a while. Did you do the stepping? Yeah, so we cut it. I tried dope once. I got violently sick. I was like, fuck this. I was more into like LSD, speed, pills. I did every fucking drug under the sun except for that. But yeah, so we would cut it. How'd you, like, I never heard anyone talk about how they actually cut dope. How'd you, how'd you do it? Uh, Well, they would, they stepped on it in half because it was potent shit. So they flipped it in Rockaway. 
I forget what they used. I think it was like, I want to say laxative, baby laxative or whatever the fuck they were using at the time. I don't even remember what the fuck it was. And but, then they rebag it all. And up. then they rebag it. But Mikey had problems because he took some of the dealers. Everybody had a brand, right? Poison, this, that. So Mikey was selling dummies on the Lower East Side, I found out, with like their stamp on it. So if you did that, they would murder you because, yo, once your once your brand gets tarnished and people are like, yo, there's motherfuckers out there selling fake shit, it could tarnish your whole shit. It's bootleg. It's like bootleg copyright. It is. Business. It's like, yo, except you don't get taken to court. You get taken to the fucking morgue for doing that shit. And like, I think that Mikey, so we went to do this pick up the package. And then Mikey was like, change your plans, whatever the fuck he, you know. And it, like, Buckles got, Buckles got busted. And I think Mikey had fucking dropped a dime on him to keep the package. So then that's when we went from, he did, we, he was like, we're going we're gonna to sell it. We'll get a place, this, that. He fucking banged all the dope. We were fucking staying in, in burnt out bungalows. And There's one line in that, in that story that I remember really well where, like, Mikey shooting dope and Buckles is like, how's the dope? And Mikey always just says to Buckles, oh, it's garbage. It's garbage. Because he doesn't want it. Yeah, it's always fucking garbage. I love that line. You know, yeah, it's always garbage. Because that's Mikey. Mikey wants to get over it and get whatever he could for himself. He was the most hustling motherfucker ever, man. Like, I always said, like, if that dude utilized his skills to... Do good in the universe. He could have been. He could have been fucking running a Fortune 500 company. Oh, dude, the three laws of the street hustle. Yeah. What were they? Always believe your own bullshit. It's a numbers game, which meant if somebody doesn't believe you, like we, if we were selling pills or acid, and you got these doubting motherfuckers, they were like, he's like, just don't waste time with him. Move on. It's a numbers game, and he always used to quote P.T. Barnum. You know, there's a sucker born every minute and two to take them. And we were the two. And then the last one was trust your vibe. If something feels off, trust that. And he learned and he said, that's what kept me alive all these motherfucking years. And I remember one night, and I tell this story, Mikey had done something else. And I went to the garden and I, and I hustled. So every time after we hustled, we would go to this like greasy fucking bar, McCann's up there and get burgers and fries and go count up and do whatever. And I just felt something was fucking off that night. And I tell that story. I, it, like I'm take, I go into the bathroom, I order my food, I go in, take a piss, and a fucking Spanish dude comes in with a fucking blade up behind me while I'm pissing. And I'm like, yo, the fuck? But there was a dude taking a shit in the stall with the door closed. And he goes like this to me, like puts his finger up like, Shh. and he walks over to the door and he kicks the stall door open and just starts fucking slicing this dude and stabs him in the fucking slicing him like blood squirting out from his juggler vein and the motherfucker just collapsed on the side of the stall and fucking died. A motherfucker. Did you ever find out why? No, 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 not even one word was said. And the thing was, the stall was there, but I had to get past him to try to get out. And it wasn't happening. He was bigger. 
I'm a fucking kid. He's like this cock diesel. You could tell that motherfucker been in prison. Murderer. And he walks up to me with the blade and he's looking at me and I'm like, my eye, I, I, I was just like, this dude's going to fucking kill me right now. I'm going to die in this fucking bathroom. And he just puts his finger up to his mouth again and goes, shh, drops the fucking blade and walks out. And I was like, Holy shit. I knew something was off that night. I, I, I just sensed something. And, and I learned to, you know, I told Mikey and he was like, third trust, law, trust your third law. You know, always trust it. And I didn't. You know, I, I just felt something was weird. I, I couldn't put my finger on it, but I almost got murdered. And then, like, all the other shit that I, I, I saw on the streets, I, I started putting that into practice. I love always believe your own bullshit, yeah. though. Because, like, you have to... You, and like well, you can, when you're selling fake drugs, sometimes we would take half a hit of real acid... And then, uh, you know, fucking be tripping a little bit. And like, motherfuckers is like, I mean, I seen this dude literally take a, a bottle of vitamin B12, dump him in a baggie and go to fucking Forest Park and sell him for pink 697s and go make 300 fucking dollars in an hour. But see, that's how you run into problems because when you start doing that shit and people find out about it and that came back like, when I burned all the bridges in Rockaway and I started selling in Forest Park with Disco and this other dude who manufactured the dope, they were like, Disco was like the muscle of Forest Park. And, and when did you get into dust? Um, you know, it was funny because I tell the story about uh, in 76, it was the bicentennial, so they had a big dance at St. John's. And St. John's was in Rockaway Beach, which was known as the Irish Riviera. It was the working class Irish motherfuckers came there or lived there. And the last thing they wanted was black and Spanish kids. So the kids got beat up in the home all the time when they left the property. So they would send me out at night and I would cop weed and get weed and beers and fucking porno mags and rolling papers. And, you know, um, what I was saying about St. John's was that it was the bicentennial dance and I was, I had all the black clothes on, the gabardines, the whole shit, man. Like, you know, I went to Harlem and Brooklyn with the kids in the home and got all the clothes and thinking I was the, the fucking Mac. And I just walked down to Playland, watched the fireworks. I was coming back up the beach and every campfire I was stopping and smoking and drinking, tie stick, hash oil, all this shit. And then one... It was this weird smell like spearmint. And they went to pass me the joint. And the dude stopped and was like, nah, man, yo, this you can't smoke this, dude. This is angel dust. And uh, I didn't smoke it then. But I started smoking when I went to Forest Park because I was dealing for these guys out there. And um, it was wild, dude. Dust was like, he made this black dust that was more powerful, this dude, computer. And it was like people were coming from all over the five boroughs to get this angel dust. And Mikey was like, I held all the, all the dust. So it was these little aluminum foil packets, $10 each. 
You know, people were just fucking coming in there, buying like I was making money. And where does dust come from? Like, what is it exactly? So you, uh, so originally, this is this is the history of it. So I did research for this show I almost sold, and Howie Tannenbaum, the agent of Vince Gilligan from ICM. I wrote this pilot about this cop, John Wildman Wild. John, you're a fucking legend, crazy motherfucker. He took down the dust trade. So basically, it came from the bikers brought it from California, except that they did what's called sherms, which was you take yeah, yeah, yeah. all of the chemicals that PCP and all this other stuff, uh, pipuridin, like all this other uh, embalming fluid, like all this crazy sh chemical mixture, and you dip the cigarette or the joint in it. But when it came to New York, they flipped it and started putting it on spearmint leaves and soaking it. So you had to whip up outside because you couldn't mix the chemicals inside a house. The shits were so volatile. This dude used to whip up on top of Houdini's grave in Mecklefierson Cemetery out by Grover Cleveland Park in Queens. And then, you know, you let the shit dry out and it was this black dust. Everybody was... Like this shit, I would, we would sell out. And Mikey, uh, this guy Disco Mike, carried a fucking like nickel-plated 45. He, he was a big, he looked like John Travolta on steroids. I had these cases and all this shit. The cops were looking for me. I robbed my mom's house with my brother before he got locked up. So it would. It was Did like, you smoke a lot of dust back yeah, then? Yeah, I was a fucking dust head, dude. And like, I know in California, they would call it smoking sherm. Like, well, that's the sherm was the cigarette. That's how they did it. That's why it was called the Sherm. But it was the bikers that had, the bikers started that whole shit. So it wasn't really a New York thing. Everyone was smoking dust all over the country. Yeah, but the New York, when it came from California, the New York people put it on spearmint leaves. They took the chemicals and put it on the leaves, dried it out, and then that's what that's how they smoked it here. And then you would put it in a pipe or roll a joint of dust. And that's how you would smoke it. Dust makes people crazy. Oh, dude, it was it was fucking like this detective. The stories that he told me, I was like, "Yo, man, people murdering their whole family, putting them in the fucking attic, and throwing a party for three days, and like just crazy shit." Like this one dude we knew from Sixty Third Drive in Regal Park, fucking. He was smoking dust and his pops kicked him out. He went and burned the whole fucking house down and murdered his whole, this kid, Kevin, Irish kid, killed his whole fucking family. The shit back then people would do. And I remember this one story. It was like th this guy, they were looking for him. He murdered some people and then they found him in this shitty hotel in Manhattan and he was coming at them with a knife and they were just empty in there. Boom, boom. And he it was like, one. he's like, it was one of those monster movies where, like, the dude just kept coming. The dust, the guy on dust. Yeah, and then finally they, the guy just fucking blasted his head off his shoulders with a fucking shotgun. That's how they dropped him. But, yeah, it was just crazy stories. And uh, the crazy shit is we sold dust to this maniac from Woodside to his sister. And she jumped out the family. Second story window was in the hospital. So he wanted revenge, and he, he was coming in, you know, looking, who got dust, all this shit. And 
It was like, how do you, I, that's the one, I mean, you say you, you did dope one time. I never did dust. I got offered dust one yeah. time and I didn't smoke it. What does it feel like? You just hallucinate and it's hard to describe, dude. It's I, there was a guy. It's who like used, something you never can even grasp unless you smoked it. Right. And it, it topples people. Like like there's a dude at Katz's who's a manager at Katz's. He started smoking dust, disappearing. He's like homeless selling scrap metal. Yeah, now. you just lose your fucking mind. Like some people don't come back from that, you know, like something snaps. The thing about it, I think I was dealing with a lot of suppressed pain and this shit would just I would smoke so much dust that I would just like pass out for hours and just fucking like you know hallucinate I like the first time I ever smoked dust this like claw came out of the clouds and fucking I mean it's just you see evil shit it takes you to like I believe you know that there's other planes of existence even other realities that exist even in earth and there's drugs that open up your third eye and allow you to be taken to some fucking hellish places and dust is one of those drugs and you can just do there's people that murdered people and just did their kids and everything and didn't even know that they did it i mean that's how you would just black out and do insane shit so that's why john he was originally like, I think he was a homicide detective, and then he started finding the, the, the common denominator in all these insane murders was people were high on dust, and then he started going to the biker bars in Queens because that's where he heard, and, and you know, and then he just tracked it down from there. And um, he knew the people that I dealt for. <laughs> but this is the insane part of it was that this guy rolled in and started shooting i got i caught a 22 in the leg and it just he you know we went to mikey's house because i couldn't go to the hospital i had two bench warrants this guy mike mike uh disco mike he was with this little 16 year old disco kid this guy was like fucking 230 pounds steroid head disco and he put shit in our drink and tried to fucking rape us and like I passed out, pulled the bullet out of my leg, and he ch I woke up with him like carrying me. I'm like, fucking yo, what the fuck? I start fucking, he drops me on the floor. But I said, he had this look in his eyes of evil that I had never seen before. And I was like, it was like a devil. Right. It was a fucking demon that this guy was possessed by. So he dropped me. And I passed back out and I woke up to screaming. I got up, I walked to the back room and I pushed the door open and he was raping the other fucking kid. And all of the shit that happened to me as a kid and I realized what he tried was wanting to do to me. And I was very violent back then if somebody fucked with me. That's, and he had a baseball bat and I just fucking crept in, picked up the bat, and just started fucking beating him with it until he collapsed on the fucking floor. And then I took uh, his dust and his money and whatever the fuck and just went back to the park. And What happened to the kid? I don't even know, dude. But I'll tell you something. This is the amazing thing about social media. My old account 
somebody had written me and goes, yo, man, I was in Forest Park back then and he screenshot an article. So this guy was connected to one of the crime families, mafia, Mike uh, Disco. Disco. They had, they didn't say Disco Mike, they had Mike something another. And he was drugging and raping all these kids. Hmm. And he drugged and raped the nephew of a made guy and they fucking murdered him and they shoved the baseball bat up his ass and it said it in the article and I was like, holy fucking shit. And he was like, dude, when I just read your book and I knew that guy and I was like, this is fucking him. So it just shows you like when you do shit, it's karma. karma never loses an address, man. Right. You know, you raped kids and that could have been me. And, and then I, I've heard you talk about uh, what happened to you in the foster home. And, yeah. like, and then when you're putting together evolution of a Cro-Magnon and, and you kind of realized like, I mean, you got molested and, and that's something that's really hard to talk about. And when you when you could finally talk about it, it changed you. How, how hard is it to talk about it now and how helpful do you think it is? How, how many people have come up to you to thank lot, you for talking man, about a it? A lot, a lot. I get a lot of people that just like me are in recovery and they're like, that shit happened to me, man. And I couldn't, fuck, I was embarrassed. I couldn't talk. Like I, I kept, when I started writing the book, I would get to that part and I would just break down and literally sob uncontrollably and stop writing and then try to pick it up a month or two later. And I took my teacher's seminar, Robert McKee, and during the breaks, you could always ask him questions, right? And we were, I was writing a film and basing a lot of my main character on what I went through. And I waited for everybody else outside because he was like a chain smoker. You Robert know? McKee. Yeah, he would bang out like three cigarettes in a 15-minute break. And um, I think this one was at FIT, he was speaking it was a three-day story seminar, and I go, Mr. McKee, and, uh, you know, I love that guy, man. He's like, Brian Cox portrayed him in Adaptation. Yeah. Nailed it. That's what he's like. Nailed it. I was about to ask 100%. You that. That's like my favorite That's movie. McKee. Yeah, yeah, He used to fuck with me and be like, these fucking guys, you know, char true character versus characterization, all the guys... And I'm in the front row. He's like, all fucking tattooed, one, <laughs> you know, tough guys. But underneath, they're fucking marshmallows. And he's looking at me. Right, and I'm right. like, but I, we developed a good friendship. But I said, Mr. McKee, in terms of a main character who was abused as a child, and he just stopped me and he goes, child abuse is the number one cliche of writers who are writing flat characters who can't get an ounce of sympathy for their character. Nobody cares about it. So they throw some child abuse in there to try to get some emotions out of the audience because otherwise they wouldn't give a fuck because they aren't writing good characters. And he said, it's not what happens to a character. It's, what's they, it's what they do as a result. That is the story. And that's when the life, light came on. And I went... And I was like, the last memory I have of my father, and I never stopped writing from that point. And it was the night he broke in and fucking tried to murder my mom, and the cops came and took us away, like, you know. And um, I was able to process 
what happened to us because it was the older kids in the home like they were fucking like 17 18 whatever the fuck like doing fucked up shit to us and threatening us and everything else we you know i mean i i tried to tell the nurse at school when we were getting beat up by the foster father and i had bruises and he came and fucking lied and said hey, they did this playing football and all and she bought it and then he took me to a, an insane asylum creedmoor Pilgrim State. Pilgrim State, yeah, yeah, Pilgrim State. Yeah, and yeah, it was like, out on Long Island. This is where I'm gonna put you if you open your fucking mouth again. Like, no one will ever find you. So, like, that was it. I just kept quiet, you know. When you got sober, was the molestation right on the tip of your head, or was it not? It was it like not something that you were thinking about? Nah, it was. Uh, because that's like a, a horrible... Well, you know, even after I wrote the book, I still was dabbling. That's that's why I got... Like, I, I was doing the weed parties and DJing and taking ecstasy and, like, all this fucked up shit, you know? And, and uh, I was like... I felt like I was going to fucking just relapse again completely after coming off the freebasing crack pill shit for two years, which is an insane story in itself. But the kicker was AJ, my guitar player, was the disciple of like this real holy man from India who was this amazing astrologer, like unbelievable. A Vedic astrology is the most accurate. And AJ goes to the Swami, I got to ask you, what do you think my singer wants me, wants me to do another music with him to write an album? And the Swami goes, yes, you can write the album when he gets out of prison because that's where he's going. His chart is saying that he is doing drugs and selling drugs. So the police are coming for him and he will go to prison. He didn't know nothing about what I was doing. He didn't know me. AJ never told him nothing. And then we were delivering and we delivered to this dude. And I never met people on the street. That was the thing. I had to go to your house or whatever the fuck. And I did it for this one time. So this guy was drinking at a bar and he walked into a cop car that looked like our car and, and he jumped in the back seat and there was two detectives in the front and they were like, yo, what the fuck are you doing? He's like, oh, oh you guys like look like my friend. I was waiting for my friend to come get me. And they were like, he gets out of the car. Finds you. And we pull up and he gets in and never said anything that he just got out of a cop car. So the cops followed us to make sure to see what we were doing. We dropped him off at the bus, uh, that Penn station. They had cops nail him and then they followed us for a few more deliveries and then surrounded the car and I got popped. But they thought they were like, fuck, it's just weed. Like, they were hoping it was like, you know, because people were selling heroin and coke and ecstasy. That's a federal offense. But uh, they tapped my phone. They followed me. They thought I was, they they thought, uh, we like, we're like, we know you're doing, you're selling hard shit. So that was it. I got out of the whole shit. And that was right before 9-11. And I sold the weed business. Got the fuck out, and that was the last time I touched anything. Did you sell the weed business as a business or as just the bus? As a business. That's crazy. So you sell the numbers, you sell the whole I thing. I gave him my whole client list. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Cash, dude. 
Fascinating. I sold the whole client list. When Because when I was doing like fucking two, $3,000 a day profit. When you look back at your addiction years, what was the, the substance that was the hardest for you? Crack, liquor, what yeah, was it? Crack. The crack. It started out as Freebase. And I was like with this like model chick from California and she had money. Her parents had money. So it started out, I always say that. It always started out, you know. Fun. Fabulous, <laughs> fun, great times. And we started out mansions on Pacific Coast Highway. And then toward the end, we were in a crack motel in Compton. And I was going to sell her for fucking crack to get coke. We were, I was going to prostitute her. And uh, she was terrified of me, man. She was like. But that never happened. No. No. First scam was we just kept maxing out her credit card and buying shit that the dealers wanted. Then they turned off the cards. Then she had two checkbooks. So it was beat checks all up and down the West Coast. And then like the parents had hired fucking private detectives. Like her stepfather did Ronald Reagan's inaugural fucking ceremony in 84, you know, in 84. So he was connected like a motherfucker. And the father was a big businessman in New York. So they had everybody looking for us, but we were staying in underground punk rock shit. You know, we did crazy shit. We like robbed the fucking Chili Peppers merch girl. We were getting high with her and she sold crystal meth. You know, just... What happened to that chick? I don't know, man. She... Do you ever see her again? I saw her like 20 years ago and she was fucking getting high still in yeah. and out, still in and out of rehabs. I, uh, you know, I think she married some rich dude and ended up having kids. But I don't know. I wish her the best. Of course. But we did crazy shit. And then she told, they were looking for us. And then she told her friend what flight we were on. And the last thing we had was like, we sold her car for like two ounces of blow and plane tickets and like $500 and uh, heading back to New York and she's fucking something was weird with her right like it was her friend that bought this dealer and I come out of the bathroom in LAX I'm like she's on the phone I'm like who the fuck did you call she's like oh I just told what's his name that we made it alright everything's cool we got the tickets you know, the, we're, we're getting on the flight. And um, during the flight, she's like acting fucking weird. And I'm like, yo, what's up? Like, she stuck and starts crying. She's like, I'm scared of you. I'm like, what? I was like, I started feeling like something was fucking off. And I'm like, yo, who the fuck did you call back there? She's like, I called my family because I, uh, I'm, I don't want to die. And I'm like, I got federal fucking warrants, man. I'm done. Like, how could you fucking do that to me? But you think I would... The first thing I, I was like... Because back then they didn't search you. So I had an ounce in my carry-on and an ounce I checked in. And the first thing I said was, I, we got to sniff all the blow in the overhead. Fucking <laughs> thought of going to the bathroom. Did she, did she also? No. I was just sniffing fucking boulders. 
I said, I'm taking all the money and the coke. If I get away, fuck you. Well, betrayal is... She betrayed me. And that was was one of my triggers the whole time. I was betrayed my whole life. I was betrayed by people from from birth. You know, I was conceived out of a rape, which I didn't even know. My mother kept telling me she's taking us back. The foster parents lying. Everybody bullshitted and betrayed me. On the streets, I was betrayed. My first girlfriend died of a heroin overdose with Mikey Debris. And just betrayal just sends me off the fucking rails. My band members fucking betrayed me. You know, people I did drugs with betrayed me. So it was like, that's the one thing is if you betray me, I have a hard time dealing with betrayal. How do you deal with it now? Four agreements, I don't take it personal. You know, that's one of the things. Domingo Ruiz says, always do your best. Don't, uh, you know, be impeccable with your word. Uh, don't don't make assumptions and don't take things personal. So like the betrayal aspect, it just happened to me again. So like with band members, that's why I don't fuck with the cro no more. You know, betrayed by a friend, that was I was in the band with. I stepped it off. That's what I do now because when was that? What were you, what are you talking about? This was about right now? before the pandemic. I was, you know, what's I, you saw that story three weeks ago in the with the Paris story, the guitar player story. He's like, he said he never got paid out of the record. Oh yeah, that's Harley or whatever. I don't fucking, I don't, I don't fucking. This guy, if I say anything about him, it's a fucking lawsuit. Yeah, so, so we I don't need to worry about that. Fucking shut. So when you go over the hell chaos fucking insanity of your life prior basically to 2001 and you think about your life now and the life you've been living and you put together a book that kind of outlines the insanity and then it outlines a solution how do you sit with the insanity i just see it as like a past life at this point you know like I had to fall back on my spirituality. I mean, I was a monk. I do my japa meditation every day. I read. I pray. I'd be of service to other people. I stay physically fit. I'm writing. I'm constantly creating projects. I see that as like I always had this personality that I knew I could murder somebody. Like I knew, and I don't say that. I just knew that. My mother even said it as when, as I was a kid, that I have the same temper as my father, and it's weird because like I'm the middle. Why was I named after him, not the firstborn? And I was the boxer, and I was the fucking fighter, and I was the maniac on the fucking streets. Like if you fucked with me, I would put a pipe across your face and not think twice about it. I was like, street justice, motherfucker. So, like, I see that as, like, a past life. But what I said, too, is it's a razor's edge out here. One slip could be fatal. So I walk that razor's edge every day, and I do shit to stay disciplined. I, that's my whole thing. Discipline is everything. You stay disciplined in your life, extremely disciplined. You, you, you do all this hard work. I, I just swam two and a quarter miles before I before I came here. I ran 13 miles. I did a half marathon on my 61st birthday, October 3rd. But what if you're like a lazy fuck? 
Like, like, what do you do? Like, I, I've become very, very disciplined in my work because I love my work. I've become disciplined in my life because I love what I do. But I'm a lazy fuck deep down. You know what I mean? Like, I well, some everybody processes their shit differently. If you're able to be a lazy, for me, I I have to challenge myself constantly because I have this personality of like, when I went into drugs, it was full bore. Right. I have that fucking mentality of like, I'm going to be the craziest, sickest fucking drug dealer. I'm going to fucking do whatever it takes. I, it's this mentality that I always, even in the Cro-Mags, I had to, we had to be the best band and, and we were the best hardcore band. Metallica came to see us and James Hetfield got in the mosh pit. Our shows back then were fucking insane. But how do you coach somebody that isn't as that intense or can't do? Well, what they got to find something because if you don't find your thing, whatever that thing is, to occupy yourself with positive action. That's what the PMA effect is all about, the book I wrote. Like, you have to replace the negative with the positive. You can't exist in a vacuum. Everybody I know that relapsed gave up on their shit. Everybody I know that relapsed, if you don't walk that razor's edge and understand what's waiting for you, look at Todd, our guitar player, that fucking died. You know how many people I know that have died from fentanyl and drug overdoses no, in the me last too. years? Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. like, it's fucking insane. But they had a saying when I was a monk, if you relax, you get the ax. Don't fuck around. Don't tempt fate. I know for a fact I just lost my brother. I know. For, and, and there was periods I posted a picture of him online where he was clean for a while. How much what was the longest time he had? I don't even remember. I didn't keep I didn't keep count on his on his days. I don't even really keep count on my days. I just know it was like the summertime of it was the summertime like right I think it was like June right before 9/11 that I I got popped and I knew I was going to go to prison. Some I just I've always been in touch with God and prayed and like even when I got locked up and I was in Spofford, I was like why are you doing this to me? Like, what the fuck did I do to, to have to live this life of abused in foster homes in the streets and just, like, alone? I spent a lot of time alone. So when you do that and you look deep in your soul, you're going to find out what the fuck you're made of. And I just wrote about that the other day. I go, yo, don't be afraid. You, It's great to have community in recovery, but you need that alone time, too. You got to fucking self-analyze. You have to... Take that time to meditate. Take that time to, you know. So, like, I find that people that really get tested in life. There was a famous atheist, and he wrote all these books. And then somebody kidnapped him and locked him in the trunk of a fucking car. And he said, he, and he got out, and he got rescued. And then he said, I want you to burn every book I ever wrote. Because right. the entire time, I prayed to God. Right. So... It's very easy when you don't get tested and put life and death situations to be like, you know, like all these hipster fucking, you know, no answer in life. And maybe that's their path for a little while. But, you know, it's like we're part and parcel of, of a higher calling. We're part like that's what the Vedas say. We're, we're part and parcel of Krishna. So 
If you don't have that connection, it's like severing your hand. It's useless. So I find for me, what works for me is my sadhana program. I talk about that a lot, which is my sadhana is my, is my spiritual practice every day, my physical practice every day. I, got, I, I work out every day. I'm 61 years old. I could still fucking bang out 35 fucking pull-ups at a pop. What's your spiritual practice look like on a daily oh, basis? Oh, I chant on my beads every day. Hare Krishna. In the Hare morning? Krishna, 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 Hare, 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 Rama, 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 Hare. Whenever, like, whenever I can, I try to get rounds done in the morning. I'm supposed to do 16 rounds a day, follow the four regular principles, no intoxication, no meat, fish, eggs, none of that shit. I'm plant-based. That's all part of my practice, but the biggest part of my spiritual practice is to be of service. That's why Prabhupada came from India. You want to see an amazing documentary, go on YouTube and put in your ever-well-wisher. He came here at, in his 70s from India, not even knowing anything about New York or anything, and was homeless and living on the Bowery, and he got robbed, but his spiritual master in India said to go to the West and save people. So he said that's that should be our mission in life is to be of service to help other people. So that's why, like we were talking about before, I started the food relief program at Tompkins Square Park in 82. It's, it's a life of service. In the beginning, how natural was such deep uh, spirituality to you? I was searching, like I met the bad brains, and then I met them in 80, and then when that case came and I had to split, I stayed with... Henry Rollins and Ian Mackay put me up at their place in, I think it was Alexandria, across the bridge from, uh, DC, from Georgetown. And then I came back up here, but I was a mess when I went in the Navy. I was a, I was a fucking drug addict. And you get these people, they're like, yeah, you fucking went AWOL and you didn't even... I was like, first of all, I lied. They covered up my whole fucking drug cases and everything and and i was an addict when i went in so yeah i fucked up but why 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 does why do things happen because the addiction was stronger than me i needed something in my life that gave me the power back right addiction was something i dealt with my whole life i i wrote about it in a book i started stealing fucking pills from parent from family's medicine cabinets and shit when I was in the foster home and like I always had to fucking drink as much as do as much drugs do whatever more than anybody else so addiction controlled my life you know like in Norfolk when I was in the navy I was violent I was getting in fucking I was fucking people up man who brought you Hare Krishna in the first place? I'm going to tell you. So when I came back up to New York and I caught that case and I went AWOL, I lived with the Bad Brains, and they used to go to this health food store called Prana Foods. This was early 81. And there was a dude in there named Vinny Signorelli who played with the punk rock band The Dots. So when the Bad Brains first came and played in 79, The Dots opened up for the Bad Brains. And Jimmy Quid, who was in the Dots, produced the first Bad Brain single that had Stay Close to Me and Pay to Come on the other side. So Vinny became friends with the Brain. So I would go over to the health food store and I stopped eating meat and all that shit. And then every day Vinny would give us 
food and fucking feed us like from the juice bar. And then he's like, yo, do you need a job? We need somebody. So I got the job. And then I, you know, I had already started going to like, I saw Krishnamurti speak and I read all the books. Jerry Williams, J.W. Lee, who was in Blood Clot, the first Blood Clot, was the Bad Brains producer, sound man. So it was his studio, 171A, that we all lived at. And he started educating me, started giving me books on Ram Das, Be Here Now, Krishnamurti, like The Way, Gurdjieff, all these books. I was like, I just started becoming like a fucking sponge, sponge for like spiritual knowledge. So when I went to work at the store, I started, me and Vinny started talking about philosophy. And I go, so what is God? He goes, God is a person. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, not a per. God has a, has a form. God has personality. We have personality. So, uh, and then he was like, I go to this Krishna temple. Let me ask if, if I can have you come up. And it was on 7th Avenue. And then that was the first time I ever went there. And we went there right before this ceremony and the curtains opened for the altar and they played this Govinda Mahdi Pusham. And he's like, that's George Harrison playing bass on that. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, he produced this record, the Radha Krishna Temple. And George Harrison, and I love the Beatles. He's like, George, it's, George donated the London Temple to Prabhupada. I was like, what? So I started getting into it. He goes, Krishna's going to show you that this is the real deal. And I went out to my mom. I brought her these organic groceries, and she lived in Jackson Heights. So when I get off 74th Street, Roosevelt Avenue, to get on to the 7, there's a, there's a monk standing there, Hare Krishna monk. Mm. I'm like... Crazy. So I got my first book, and I was like, I don't have any money. He goes, well, you got to give something. It's about service. I, you have to do service. You can't take. You have to give. And I was like, well... He goes, well, how about one of those bottles of juice? I'll, I'll, I'll share it with the other devotees here. And I was like, okay. And I was like, Vinny, I came back. I had like the Science of Self-Realization book, which is phenomenal. And he goes, I told you. Right. And I started getting more and more into it. And then I started chanting. And then I was like, they had a magazine called Back to Godhead. And I had developed, when I went into the Navy, I was a boatswain mate, so like I had all the deck skills, tying knots and all that type, doing mow boards, maneuvering boards. This was before GPS, you had the plot. So they, they, they ran an article that they needed somebody to work on this Krishna sailboat in Hawaii. And I called up and I was like, I'm your guy. He's like, all right, come on out. So wow. I did. Jeez. And I was a monk for a year there. Do you think when you're like distributing books and, and going through all this literature, you're like, is that where you're like, I want to write a book comes in? Well, because you're, you're a prodigious, prolific writer. You've written yeah, like five books, six, six books. Excuse me. Well, Prabhupada is in the Guinness World Book of Records for translating more of the Vedic literature than anybody. I, so I'm not trying to be Prabhupada. No one can ever be Prabhupada. And that's what's happened in the movement too. these scumbags did crazy shit, raped kids and did all this crazy shit in the movement. And that's what turned me against them when I found out what they were doing to the children in the schools and covering it up. And even to this day, it's pedophiles running things. But 
I have a story to tell. And I'm like, if I could take my experience and put it in such a way that could help other people. And let me tell you something. When I put out my memoir, Evolution of a Crow Magnum, people were emailing me like, yo, this shit happened to me, man. And I won't mention no names, but it's pretty famous people that were like, you know, uh, it took a lot of courage for you to write that, I, you know, and thank you for doing that. And other people were just like, yo, similar pasts and all the books, even Medias for Pussies, which is like a comical book. I wrote Unfuck Your Health. Hardcore Kitchen was the cookbook, the PMA effect. And now I wrote this one. But all of it is like with the underlying desire to try to help people, just like I always put the link to read or listen to Prabhupada's books for free. BhaktiVedantaVedicLibrary.org. So like anybody, you know, it's always about service and this is what helped me. If you think hearing all this and like, and, and if you think what I did could possibly help you, then here you go. If not, fine, you know, you get people that, you know, I like I like how much you think that we need to use index cards and, and bulletin boards. I need to get a bulletin board and some fucking index Absolutely. cards. Absolutely. I don't have it. I do it, dude. That's you know, that's the system. Like even I'm writing a comedy right now, so it's like I gotta do the step outline. So I take a combination of uh Blake Snyder's Save the Cat and my teacher Robert McKee's story. So I, I put all the scenes on cards and how does the scene turn? What's the value? Even the book, I did the, I did the, you know, the chapters like that. And I, and I say in my coaching business that I have, the way we accomplish difficult things is, is we take a big goal and we break it down into small, we compartmentalize into smaller manageable goals. So let's take, let's take a book, right? I've written a bunch. How do I do that? Well, first I have the ideas for all the chapters. So I'll have that's where you start. 30 cards. Yeah. Of what the chapters are. And then I go do and I do research and I start putting sub chapters in. So under each chapter, I'll have a stack of like fucking 10, 15 cards. Gives me a place to start. How do you start on a big goal? How do I start an Ironman? Does my coach have me go out and fucking ride 100 miles and run 10 miles off the bike? No. She starts you out incrementally and... So now I'm at, I'm a month out from my Ironman and she has me doing five hours on the bike, three, two, three mile swims, fucking, you know, running fucking 18 miles, running 10 miles after doing 80 off the bike. Now the heavy load stuff starts coming, you right. know? How natural was it to trust teachers and coaches for you? I, this is what I always tell people. What did Prabhupada say? Example is better than precept. In other words, the best leaders lead from the front. I have a bunch of friends who were retired SEALs and they were, you know, they were squad leaders. They had to take men into combat in the most fucking crazy situations, but they always led from the front. They always lead by example. My friend AJ James, who was in the movie Act of Valor, he developed the fighting system that they teach in the third phase of Bud's SEAL boot camp, like, He's a fucking stud, dude. He's like the real Jason Bourne, and he's from Trinidad. But everything he does, I watch, and I'm like, this fucking guy, and every one of those dudes are the best. The best followers make the best leaders, and it's all about hearing first, right? So 
that that's that's the whole thing with me is like I look to see what that person is doing. It's just like I tell people that I, I said these kids don't give a shit what you say. It's what are you doing? Be the example. So my coach, she's in Kona right now. She qualified for the world championship. I see what she does on a daily basis. Samantha Murphy, I fucking love her. She was in um, that Iron Mind documentary that we did with the guy from from London. You know, she's been my coach now for years, and but she leads by example. She's out there raising a daughter on her own and still putting in all the work and qualifying to go to Kona. So, like, it's like that with anything. I, even writing, I'm like, okay, what's this person's skill set? Or working out, or when I studied martial arts, I, Ron Van Cleef, the Black Dragon, when he was at a, El Bohio over there. Now he's in Hawaii, but you would hear the stories of him and Victor Vega and fucking all these insane martial artists, real great martial artists. And the one thing they all have in common is they, they don't just fucking talk, they walk the walk. So that's what I look to see in a teacher or anybody that's mentoring or anything is like, what is that person? I don't want to hear this, don't do as I do, do as I say bullshit, because that don't fly with me. No. Just like me. If anybody's going to listen to me, it's like, okay, well, what's this dude's fucking resume What's his like? story? And, and yeah, but what, what's this dude doing? That's why it's always... You have to set the bar high and always challenge yourself, you know, and and be out there like, hey, I could have very easily relapsed when my brother died, you know, but that, that thought never crossed my mind for a second. I got to go to the bar and get drunk. No, I got to train. I got to go gotta get, get in the pool. I got to train. I got to get on the fuck. And yeah. And I, I got a chance. And I rode like 80 miles the next day. Right. And tomorrow you're going to go to Tompkins Square Park and feed a bunch of people out there. Feed the homeless it's like it's like you, in Tompkins Square Park, and I got to do a one-hour run in the morning, and then I got fucking you know. It's just not. Listen, man. Discipline. I, I have a certain. It's discipline. Discipline creates the habits. Habits create the routines. The routines become who we are, not who the fuck we say we are. Well, the most important thing is is to me is flipping it and 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 showing positivity and love and 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 what you put in you get out and i think that's one of, i mean you got a crazy fucked up stories but the reason you're the dopey legend that you are is because you fucking are out there doing good shit you that's know? it but it could be also the opposite of that so i could be doing destructive shit to myself i could be doing destructive shit to the community to other people i could be doing destructive shit to the community i choose to be of service right What's the what's the uh, Sanskrit the Shikshastika, which is a Bengali prayer? Chaitanya Mahaprabhu left only eight prayers out of all his instructions, and it was the Shikshastika prayers on how a devotee on the path should carry themselves. And it's Trinadapi Sunechana Tarovashihishana Amanida Manadya Kitaniya Sadahari. We should always think of ourselves in a humble state of mind, lower than the straw in the street devoid of all sense of false prestige, always ready to offer respects and service to others, more tolerant than a tree, right? Think about that. Beautiful. Right? And, and in that state, in that humble state of mind, one can constantly chant the holy names of the Lord. And that's what it's all, and that's what it's all about. So like, 
That's beautiful. Though. I always try to keep myself in a position of service. That's why we address somebody as Prabhu. Prabhu means master in Sanskrit. So if I'm calling you Prabhu, I'm not ordering you around. Um, you know. I don't. I don't remember you calling me Prabhu. I, well, I think I'd know, like we're that. We're on a different. I think I'd like that. Hold on. I, I had a member of the community who's going on your walking tour tomorrow sunday sunday Doesn't three matter. o'clock this, this is gonna be in the past anyway uh had a question you want to hear her question yes all right her name is avisa and she said after doing research and writing a book on addiction plus going through your own struggles and seeing those of your brother frank where do you think the modern treatment industry and society falls short when it comes to helping an addict you don't want to know where because i'm going to tell you something when people are making billions of dollars off of a problem, they have they have they no desire. The right, right. They have no it. desire to solve the problem. Joe Rogan talked about that with the homeless issue. There's people making six fucking figures, fucking you know, working in these organizations that are supposedly helping the homeless. The fucking rehabilitation shit is a multi multi billion dollar business. So. They've basically said they've thrown up the white flag. We don't know. We don't know how to how to solve this. You know how many people I know are on fucking methadone all these years and mm. all this other shit, and then you know psychiatric drugs and it's like anything else. When people are making billions of dollars off of it and getting rich off of a problem, keep the money coming. What do you you think? There's not a cure for cancer somewhere. Of course there is. You but look at the cancer now. It's Cancer Awareness Month, pink washing, all these companies, we're helping cancer. Meanwhile, they all sell products that cause cancer. Kentucky Fried Chicken, go get your fucking pink bucket of fucking chicken and get cancer. It's a fucking joke. All right, I got another question. You ready? One last question. You hear all this stuff in the media about a global elite that doesn't care about us, with rich getting richer and the poor getting poor you talk about being self-sufficient a lot what is your suggestion for young people who are tired of the system and want to live a fulfilling life the solution is i don't want nothing to do with this materialistic cutthroat society i'm gonna i'm gonna develop a society based around love and helping humanity and service and with God in the center of your life. Because no matter how much you try to enjoy in this material world, Prabhupada said it's like a bird in a cage. If you don't take care of the soul within the cage, and, and the cage is the material body, that's all you're living for. It's all this emphasis now on all this shallow shit. That's my antidepressant right there. My chanting, my working out, all of that stuff, my service to other people, I never get depressed. I don't even get the fucking blues because every single day when my eyes open, the first thing I do, touch my head to the floor, I say my mantras, I thank God for another day of life, another day of service to people, another chance to better myself, and I get fucking going. If you get a bad feeling, though, in the day, do you just do that again? Like if something, because you can't I, live with I them. chant. You're always, you know, the vibes, the material, the modes of material nature, there's goodness, passion, and ignorance, right? So 
That's why they always say nothing good happens after midnight, man. It's like ghosts and spirits. All this shit is a reality. There's different, there's different planes of existence that we don't have the ability to see. Just like we can't see the cell phone waves with our own eyes. Right. We can't see the radio or the satellite, but it's there. Right. So there's other planes of existence right. that we're not tuned into. What energy, and I talk about this in, in Evolution of a Cro-Magnon, what energy do you want to tap into? For me, I want to tap into God's energy. That's the real powerhouse. I think uh, just your generous spirit, what you've been through, what you're willing to do, and, and the fact that you've stomached me as many hours as you have. I appreciate you, John. Thank I you. really do. Same here. Thanks for... Uh, and we're going to get a big cooking show for you in this Yeah, spot. let's do it, man. Plant-based. And, you know, the book will be out probably by... I, I'm thinking by the end of the year. Just tell the me. Final we'll design stuff's coming and it's, you know. So real quick, for a drug addict out there who's struggling, would you say discipline is the number one thing? Yep. Get D that day one. Day one. Day one. That's everything. I say you got two types of people. You got your one day motherfuckers and your day one motherfuckers. And the, and the one day motherfuckers is like, one day I'll get clean. One day I'll do this. One day I'll do that. No. You fucking start today. You put your money where your fucking mouth is. If you're going to fucking do it, you don't fucking keep putting, writing these post-dated checks. You know, if somebody gives me a check and I can't cash it till fucking 2075, it's fucking useless. And you start today. Just get one day under the, whatever the fuck you got to do to not use, do it. Go to a fucking meeting. Go fucking get in the community the recovery community has amazing fucking people in there. Go go to a meeting. Just fucking fight like hell. Occupy your day with positive stuff. Read books. Read philosophy. Pray. Go fucking go to a shelter and feed people. Do something. Anything you got to do to not use. Go take action. Take a fucking jog. Go play basketball. Do whatever the fuck you got to do. You know? Go join a fucking boxing gym, a jujitsu fucking school. Do something. Get an index card and push it Get in the wall. Get a fucking index card. Get going. I, I got to write a book, man. I got to fucking write a book. You should. Why I not? know, I know, I know. We'll get there. Well, John see, that's, that's, that. there we go. I got to write a book. Oh, I know. I'm the fucking one day motherfucker. Got to yeah. get this. I, I, I've tried and my writing isn't good enough. What do you do when you write shit that you don't like? You write and you rewrite. Right. That's what it is. What did, what did Ernest Hemingway say? The first draft of anything is complete shit. Don't think that's the problem. Everybody thinks it's a microwave society we live in. People have all these false expectations. I'm going to fucking write a hit this, that. I'm going to get a video on TikTok. I'll be famous. Bullshit. I've been doing this shit music for fucking 40, going on 43 fucking years now. Like... You know how many times you got to destroy your work? Like, if you think you're going to just write something, yeah. Somebody could write something right out the box, and it could be amazing, but... It's rare. 99.9% .9 of the time, that ain't happening. It's work. It's work. It's about showing up, and showing up is half the battle. And I'm finding that, you know, even writing this comedy now, I'm like... What's the, what's the comedy? Uh, it's a punk rock comedy. Okay. You know, based on like all the funniest shit. But it's funny because it's about... I, I can't even say because motherfuckers Does it take place got, back then? It starts back then, but then it goes to modern times. Okay. And it's like, you know... Is it a TV show? No, it's a movie. It's, right. a, it's an indie... I'm writing an indie comedy.
That's fine. I've written a bunch of stuff, but you know, uh, screenplays and pilots and stuff like that. I have an idea for another TV show. There's, there's a strike going on, I so hear. Yeah. you, you know, just keep writing. I just keep writing. I don't care. I enjoy writing. You do so, what you enjoy, and that's what Stephen Pressfield say. That's a great book, by the way, called "The War of Art" by Stephen Pressfield. He's one of my writing mentors. And somebody said, well, what happens if you do all this stuff and nothing ever becomes of the book or whatever? And he goes, you know what? I just love the process of writing. If I write these great, amazing characters and all this stuff. And you know what? If I can't, if nothing ever happens, I'll read the stories to my grandchildren. Right. So there's no loss of diminution on the path, man. Well, I do this because I love to do this. Yeah. I love to make this show. I love to put it out every week. I love to be yeah. in touch with this world and uh, people like it. But even if they didn't, I like it. And well, I have so much key. fun. And if you enjoy what you're doing, you're it not going to quit. Right, exactly. You're not going to quit. Because you get something out of and it. And people are going to smell the passion. Like Just like my, my writing teacher, Robert McKee, said, the audience can smell the lie. Right. But they also know when it's true. They also know when it's you know. Real. When it's real, when it's genuine, yeah. they know. When the pain is genuine. Or the love is genuine. When the subtext is there, you know? It's, it's not what the character says, it's what they're not saying. When you learn writing and you can write subtext into your scenes, just like what they say, if, the, if an actor steps in front of the camera and you didn't write a subtext into that scene, he's going to create one. Right, because that's right. what's my motivation. You always hear that shit. It's the subtext. Right. It's the unspoken truths that exist in this world. You let the story do its job, and right. that's what writing. That's why it's a craft. Music's a craft. It's all something you have to invest yourself into to get good at. And if you think you're just gonna fucking breeze through everything, like then your work's going to be shit. It's not how it's not it's how not, it goes. It's not reality. No. Trust me, I just wrote my sixth book. And, and you have to write from the inside out. That's, that's what you do for a character. You have to go into that character and say, if I was this character in this particular situation, what would I do? Right. That's how you write. You don't just write everything from your perspective. Like, and even, even uh, Blake Snyder says, if people share the same opinion on something one of them's got to go one of those characters got to go you don't want that conflict is what keeps the audience attention on the screen when the conflict dies their attention dies it's so much involved with it and it's so deep it's such a philosophy lesson and a study of life that's why i love writing right because it's really like the secret of life it is really the secret is of writing john thank you for your time thank your you. service your discipline oh, your love i appreciate oh, man. you man Right on. Namaste, brother. Thank you. God bless you. Hare Krishna. Man, I, I love John Joseph. I love that he he has a book, so he wants to come on Dopey. And I'm going to say something that's crazy. I think I'm blurbing his book. I think I will be blurbing his new book alongside Joe Rogan, potentially. Who knows? You never know. You never know what's going to happen. I loved everything in this talk. I love it when he talks about Hare Krishna. I like it when anybody can really talk about fucking uh, dust. You know, my manager's crazy. He always smokes dust. He's got his own room at the back of the bus. Love John Joseph. When the book comes out, we'll promote the fuck out of it. So um, what did you guys think of John Joseph? 
write us at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. I want to try something different. I I listen to podcasts here and there, and I, I wanted to, like, I'm going to play you some shit that I found that I thought is relevant to our audience. I just figured, why not? You know, the first thing that I found that I wanted to play you was Method Man from Wu-Tang Clan on the hip-hop, mostly hip-hop podcast, Drink Champs. And if you don't listen to Drink Champs, it's kind of like, it's a little bit like Dopey in that they tell, there's a lot of fucked up stories, but it's not similar to Dopey in that they drink and smoke a ton while they tell the stories. And one of the hosts, really the host of Drink Champs, is a guy named Noriega, who now goes by Nori. He was a rapper and a producer, probably a DJ too. And and Drink Champs is a pretty in-depth hip-hop podcast. But Method Man was on, and Noriega asks Method Man if he prefers Biggie Smalls or Big L, both rappers. And this was Method Man's response. Why y'all doing that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, check this, right? Big L used to sell me my my, my wet. You know what I mean? Did you say Big L? Yeah, Big L L used to sell me dust, nigga. He used to sell us our AD. (laughs) (laughs) None of us were. Get that shit from Big L up there. With that being said, both. Okay, let's be drinking. Take a shot. Salud, salud. Oh, my Juan is back. By the way, I'm not gonna uh, lie to you. Yeah. I think it's the first time I've ever been shocked like that on Drink Chance. <laughs> first of all, we didn't understand at first. Because the explanation. I'm gonna be honest. I'm gonna be honest. This, is the, this was like the first time. First time you didn't understand the slang of it. So thank you, Drink Champs. And just in case anyone is confused, that's Method Man saying that he used to buy his angel dust or his wet from Big L, and um, one day, if we're lucky, we can have Method Man on Dopey telling us all about his dust experiences. Another thing that I wanted to play on Dopey, this is just an idea, and let me, you know, email me, email me, email me at dopeypodcast at gmail.com and let me know about this this new segment on the show. Um, Fucking Howard Stern has had some pretty... Pretty major guests of late. He had uh, Keith Richards last week, and then a week before, and he didn't talk about drugs with Keith Richards at all. I think he just didn't want to go down that path. He he, they did a little bit, but nothing worth playing. He did, however, talk to Paul Simon about drugs, and um, I love Paul Simon, and I would love to have Paul Simon on Dopey. I mean, obviously Keith, but either of them. And I want he first Paul talks about ayahuasca and then he talks about his relationship with weed. So here we go. Here's Paul. Sensation and uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't I, I like listening to music and not looking at music. I know in your career you tried using drugs to see if you could enhance the music process, see if it brought something out in you, uh, maybe some pot. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know what else you, you use. I know you took a couple of acid trips to see. I didn't like that. <clears throat> I didn't like that. Uh, what I liked in the psychotropic world was ayahuasca. Really? Which, which I, but I, I haven't. I haven't taken that in twenty 
23, 24 years. Did you go to one of these shamans and go overseas? Well, the first time I I had it was on that Amazon trip. And and I wrote a song about it. It's on the Rhythm of the Saints album. It's called Spirit Voices. But uh, then I didn't do it again until uh, around uh, late 90s. And I stopped in 2000. Why stop? Because I had, a, I had a bad, I had a really bad experience. I, I had many, many great experiences with it, and um, but then I had a really bad experience with it, and I and I stopped. But uh, I, I put that into perspective too, to just to go back so that it doesn't sound like I am a a, a big proponent of uh, psychotropic drugs, even in this mini microdose right. that's been talked about a lot. What I, my, my feeling about it after all is said and done was I would have gotten the same information anyway just as time passed. But what, what does happen sometimes with this is you make very interesting connections between things that you wouldn't ordinarily connect. But again, uh, and, and that helped me quite a lot. And the, the album that is most influenced by that is uh, called uh, You're the One. Uh, The pot experience, which I also think is, I've I've come to the conclusion it was a a big waste of time. I'm with you on that. Uh, It was a big waste of time because it fed you a lot of misinformation. Either it said that was incredible or it said God, you're you're terrible, you know. And uh, what happened is that after this experience, for a couple of days, you had to say, "Is that was that really incredible, or was it really that terrible?" You know, wait a second, you know, maybe. And then I thought, you know, this just takes so so much time to like rethink what I, you know, that it's not worth it. So I skip it. But the big thing that I learned with that is if you smoke, quite often you get negative thoughts or some people get paranoid, you know. So I used to typically get negative thoughts uh, when I would smoke, if I was smoking and then I was going to write. And one time, this was my breakthrough on this, one time... um, I smoked a little bit, and then I was going to play, and the voice in my head said, "You know, that's that's no good. That's no good. You're really, you're actually, you're really not that good, you know." And I said out loud to the voice in my head, "You're right. I agree with you. I'm not. I'm not that good. I, I have a question for you. Who the fuck are you? Right. <laughs> you know. Well, what did you write? Oh, nothing." Oh, okay. Well, see ya. I gotta go to work. So, who sounds more fun, Method Man or Paul Simon? I would love to have Paul Simon on the show as well. Perhaps Paul's people can hear this. I will give the greatest interview you ever had, Method Man too, and uh, and Dopey Nation. Do you prefer Method Man's quick Big L wet story or the longer? Paul Simon, ayahuasca, and why he doesn't smoke weed anymore story, and I never got paranoid smoking weed, but 
but I also like never accomplished anything. I feel like if I was recording dopey and smoking weed, I would have a lot of negative thoughts. But when you're just watching TV and eating, I just, I didn't really have any negative thoughts. It all worked out for me. Anyway, we've come to the end of another scintillating episode of dopey. And I want to give some shout outs. I want to shout out uh, all the haters in dopey nation on Facebook and especially in Dopey Nation on Reddit. Fuck you. I want to give a shout out to uh, Nat Kingsley for bearing with us. Brad McLeod of Sober Motivation is stepping it up. Katie B, fucking Paulina. You guys know who you are. Everybody out there in the Dopey Nation who shows love and effort. Liz Ann, always, always around. Always bringing some good stuff. Steve Schneider, fucking... Who else? Fucking Cormac. The great Cormac. Look for a new Jake from West Virginia classic. He's working on a new one. And um, a lot more dopey next week. There's something else I wanted to say, but I don't remember what it was. So until next time, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I wanna be good so bad. I wanna be so good, so bad, so bad. I wanna be good so bad. Bad desires all I ever had. And I wanna take a ride up in the sky. Watch this airplane just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had and my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand And I wonder would they pay it any mind When I leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I wanna be good so bad Wanna be good so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had these suckers make me mad and I want to call my dad and it's all I ever had 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 and these suckers make me mad and it's all I ever had and I want to call my dad and it's all I ever had and it's all I ever had and it's all I ever had